Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Mark Milkey, a longtime author and think tank scholar and founder of Canada's newest think tank, the Aristotle Foundation for Public Policy. The Foundation's first major output is an essay compilation edited by Mark entitled The 1867 Project, Why Canada Should Be Cherished, Not Cancelled. The Hub has been proud to publish excerpts from several of the essays on a weekly basis over the past several weeks. I'm grateful to speak with him about the book, what he means when he argues that Canada is a, quote, ongoing project rather than a utopian destination, unquote, and how these ideas will ultimately underpin the work of the Aristotle Foundation itself. Mark, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book and the new think tank. Thanks for having me on, Sean. It's a pleasure and a privilege. Uh, let's start with the book's title. You write that you once considered calling the new think tank the 1867 Project, but ultimately found it fitting for the foundation's first book. Talk about the title significance, Mark. How does the book and the Aristotle Foundation, for that matter, relate to Canadian Confederation? Sure. So a friend suggested the 1867 Project as the name of the think tank, but I was already on the, uh, the path to call it the Aristotle Foundation. And the reason we call it the Aristotle Foundation, of course, is at least in the Western tradition, the uh, you know, the, the first stirrings of democracy or thinkings about democracy and questions about the good life, of course, come from ancient Athens, ancient Greece. And these are questions that are relevant today. What does a good life look like? How should one governs oneself? Uh, democracy versus autocracy versus other forms of government and debates about that. Those are ongoing, probably will be for all of human history. So we named it after the Aristotle Foundation. But when my friend suggested that name, I thought that's a great name for a book. And I was already thinking about a potential book on Canada. And of course, it just made sense. And of course, there was the 1619 Project down in the United States, very different kind of approach to history. Uh, ours is more positive uh, about history in Canada, um, unlike the, the 1619 Project down in the United States and, and uh, you know, kind of the attack on some of the founding fathers and ideas. So that's really where the genesis started for the 1867 project. And, and it was born out of the Aristotle Foundation, this new think tank that uh, has been started by myself and others. I suppose a critic, Mark, would argue that so much has changed since 1867 or Aristotle's life, which ended in 322 BC, that they're no longer relevant to modern life, that we've effectively moved past the ideas, principles and values of these different eras. Why is such a critic wrong? What does he or she misunderstand about human nature or the endearing insights of 1867? Or as you described Aristotle in the book, a quote, dead white male from Greece, unquote. Right. Well, the critics would be right if human nature didn't change. And unless you're, I don't know, not paying attention uh, and haven't been paying attention to, to history, 
uh, whether it's in one's own lifetime or if one's not deeply read and or doesn't read, you know, grasp the right lessons from history, then it's quite clear to me that in fact, uh, human nature doesn't change. And so in, almost every generation has to learn for themselves, you can say, and think through these things for themselves, just as we do as, as human beings, right? I mean, the old joke about uh, 15 year olds who think their parents don't know anything. And by the time they get to 25, it's amazing how much their parents have learned. Uh, it, it speaks to the notion of really that, you know, we, we discover things if we're open and learn hopefully in our lifetimes. And, um, but, you know, every person has to do that for themselves. And I would say almost every country or civilization or society has to do that for themselves. Think about what, you know, what's the role of the collective? What's the role of the individual? But the 1867 project uh, really is, is in one sense, an attack on utopianism, because I think that's part of what's at the heart of what's going on. And what I mean by that is the utopian project in the 20th century was mostly but not exclusively Marxist who looked to the future and thought they could create a perfect utopian society. Now, uh, they were dead wrong, the Marxists were, about everything, uh, human nature, uh, economics, uh, so on and so forth. And they had such an ideological uh, utopian vision that you had to fit into it, um, uh, yeah, and they would force you into it, because that's the only way, and they're, they're, they're thinking that it would work. But in any event, um, at least the Marxists could argue they were looking to the future when they looked at looked for a utopia. We now have people that look to the past and wonder why it wasn't perfect, which should be self-obvious uh, because the past is made up of human beings and a planet that you know has a volcano that might erupt on you once in a while. So nothing's perfect, not in history, not now. And the other thing I'd say, Sean, is it's it's quite immodest when people look at the past and expect Johnny McDonald to have views of 2023 without understanding the flow of ideas. But it's also immodest in this other sense, as if you and I, Sean, won't be looked at by someone 100 years from now, and they'll go, Sean and Mark, what could you possibly be thinking about issue X? Um, and, you know, they will probably be right. There's things that you and I think today that some future generation will discover that was, you know, in error or wrongheaded, or we just didn't have the full story. And that's, I think, how we should also treat 1867 and the founders of Canada and others in history with a bit of modesty. Uh, and not pretend that, you know, we have omniscience in 2023 uh, as if we're going to be spared future criticism as well. And so that's a, that's a bit of why the, the project, uh, the 1867 project really is called the 1867 project. Canada was a project then, it was project pre-Confederation, the first, you know, people now, we now call indigenous, but really were the first settlers who came here 20,000 years ago before nation states were a glint in anyone's eye. It's always been a project, it always will be a project. The book, and as we'll get into a bit later, the foundation itself, doesn't reflect the typical lines of analysis or conventional topics that one usually associates with public policy think tanks. Don't get me wrong, Mark, there's a great deal of rigor in policy analysis, but this isn't another white paper on tax reform or healthcare reform. It's more foundational in a way. It's about history and values. Why do you think that's important, Mark? Do you think that we, the royal we on the right, broadly defined, have seeded the intellectual ground on these issues too much? And if so, what have been the consequences in your mind? Perhaps, perhaps we have. I think part of the problem is man does not live by data alone. And look, I mean, the, the Aristotle Foundation is going to be about empiricism. We will use data and statistics. And you're right, there's some of that in, in the 1867 project, Matthew Lau's chapter on uh, supposed systemic racism, for example, very much a Thomas Sowell analysis of race and incomes why it's a mistake to see racism as all explanatory, all causal, because it's not. But I do think there is something to understanding that, um, what, history uh, can inform us, 
can help shape um, people's opinions. Let me give you one clear example. If you understand that in 1858, black Californians moved to Victoria, about 30 of them apparently, and began to write to their family and friends back in California saying what a wonderful place Victoria was. Um, and they, they did so not just because of what everyone does when you move to Victoria, you know, the flowers in February type thing. But the black Californians who moved to Victoria in 1858 did so because they found a welcoming community, um, which is probably not what people think. They, they look back to the 19th century and just say, well, it must have been irredeemably racist where you couldn't get a fair shake as a black person. Now, look, I'm sure there was racism. In fact, there was racism in Vancouver Island at the time. The black Americans, though, first encountered the Archbishop of the Anglican Church there. They encountered Governor James Douglas, who was welcoming. They could be citizens after two years. They could run in school board elections, you know, for council or what have you, and so on and so forth, and own property. They did encounter some racism up island from one of the First Nations communities. Um, and it speaks to, again, the, the perennial temptations in human nature to look at someone else as the other and discriminate them based on, on their collective identity as opposed to looking at them as individuals. But nonetheless, uh, in terms of if, if we're going to look at Canada and simplistically think everyone who came before us was somehow misguided or irredeemably racist, well, no, actually, the Brits thought about this in the mid-19th century. Um, they were reading John Stuart Mill, or were about to. Uh, they were reading Mary Wollstonecraft on the rights of women. So the ideas that we have today or the society that we have today came from ideas that were pretty pronounced and articulated in the 19th century. And to not understand that and to wipe away Canadian history before 2022 <laughs> or whatever, uh, or before one's four-year undergraduate is out, if you're you know, a student at a university, is akin to 1789 and uh, you know, 1917. It's a start from year zero. Uh, or C Cambodia during the, the Khmer Rouge Revolution. It's an attempt to start from year zero. And, and the question the 1867 project asks is, well, why? Why would you do that? There's some great ideas in history. They weren't perfectly um, articulated or expressed, rather, or worked out in 1867. But for heaven's sakes, I mean, Canada is a rural country, uh, not a lot of trains around, even then. Uh, how would you reform you know, Canada to give everyone perfect rights as if this was 2023. I mean, you're starting from, uh, I mean, I could go on and on, but I mean, you're starting from a very rural country. You're starting from uh, nascent attempts to say, well, should we give you know, the right to vote to everyone who doesn't have property? Because maybe they'll be irresponsible, um, et cetera, et cetera. So they're working through the ideas of what equality of the individual or equality means then, but they started. And again, back to the idea of Canada being a project. Let's take up those foundational principles and ideals that the book talks about. If Canada's intellectual foundation is fundamentally liberal, does that mark mean that conservatives in our country are themselves liberals? Is the purpose of Canadian conservatism, in other words, to essentially conserve liberalism? Yes, uh, I think in one sense it is. But of course, I think we have to define what it means because uh, many people uh, don't necessarily dig into ideological labels or philosophical labels. So what, what I mean by liberalism is the classical liberalism, which I know you know about, Sean, but maybe not everyone does. So the notion of the rights of the individual or private property rights or the rights to be free, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, freedom of expression, so on and so forth. These are classical liberal ideas. Now, today, it's often what we'd call small c conservatives. Uh, libertarians who will defend these sorts of ideas. And I think liberalism, uh, you know, writ large in the 20th century started to take a very left left wing turn into really socialism economically, right? If you look at Pierre Trudeau's economic policies, 
he was a left-wing socialist, right? Um, I don't think there's any denying that. That was really where his sympathies led and what his belief system was about. Bit of a collectivist there, even though he was, as I write in the 1867 project, he was very much a classical liberal when it came to individual rights, vis-a-vis, say, ethnic collectives in Quebec, nationals in Quebec. So, um, yeah, I, I think... I think really the, ironically, conservatism, I, I think is more, I'm not a perfect, uh, I'm not a, an expert on it, but I would say conservatism, if you understand Edmund Burke and others, is about conserving what makes sense, one, one should say, or what's grown up over time, as opposed to starting from year zero. And again, of course, Edmund Burke, you know, Edmund Burke's famous work in the 1789 revolution, uh, Reflections on the Revolution in France, is exactly that. He's saying, listen, we here over on this side of the pond have developed the Magna Carta, we've developed limits on kings. We're not going to overthrow our own country, or we shouldn't, unlike those those radical French over there, because this has protected people. And that's in their, you know, the, this organic approach to society, to governing, has protected people. And that's another image, by the way, I'd want to communicate to people, is that Canada is like an oak tree. And um, and what I mean by that is an acorn grows to be an oak tree, of course, because it has water, because it has sunshine, uh, because it has resistance, it has wind, which probably strengthen the roots. And what I love about oak trees is um, they have this massive canopy. And I mean, I live in Calgary, where we have hailstorms, it seems like every third night. And my car has been hit by hail three times. If I parked under an oak tree under the canopy, it would be protected. And that's a bit like Canada. We've protected an increasing number of people over the decades, over the centuries, really, um, an increasingly diverse set of people. And that's a good thing. But we have people today who, to use the oak tree analogy and continue it, don't like, um, they don't like the the sunshine of, say, free expression, right? Because it might expose their bad ideas. Um, they don't like resistance, so they don't like whim. So the tree's not going to grow. And, and in some really dire scenarios or, you know, dire examples, some people don't want the tree, the tree of Canada, the oak tree, to exist because they they look back and they see, you know, okay, well, Canada in 1867 discriminated against Indigenous peoples or against women, um, and it was a racist and sexist society. But um, the point is, those were you know limbs that were pruned off long ago, and um, to think that we should kill the oak tree of Canada because of you know imperfect limbs in our history. Is to kind of miss the point of the oak tree. It's here. It was built. Uh, it's pretty good. It, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't China under Mao. Never was that. It, it, you know, the notion that we're genocidal, or Johnny McDonald was because of, you know, how indigenous peoples were treated. We've got a chapter in the book on that. That's that's nonsensical, and it's extreme, and it's word inflation. But overall, again, the idea of the oak tree. If you look for perfection, I guess you'd tear anything down and poison the roots of any tree, uh, because nothing's perfect. So that that's another image that we try and get out in the 1867 project. And, and that might explain again, maybe more than anything else, how myself and the other 19 authors in the book look at Canada as an ongoing project, as an oak tree that sheltered lots of people, never perfectly, but we've pruned and pruned and pruned, and we're going to continue to prune. I mean, there's things that I disagree with today that you disagree with in the Canadian state. Um, I think some things have gone too far in one direction on issue X. So yeah, one, one continually prunes. It's a brilliant analogy. And you invoked Burke earlier. I would just say my sense is if Burke was to encounter that tree, his first impulse would be to protect it precisely because it's managed to sustain itself over the decades or centuries. And that longevity or in and of itself 
is a reason to be humble about the tree. The book documents various challenges to liberalism, including cancel culture, racialism, and presentist attacks on history. What do you think is behind the growing critiques of liberalism, including from both the left and the right? Well, again, a bit of a revolutionary impulse, a bit of a utopian impulse, right? They see imperfectionist and expected to have been perfect. There's certainly a notion of victimhood, which I don't write about as much in this book as I did in my last book, The Victim Cult. But there is this notion of grievance culture, and I think it's probably exacerbated by social media. So, for example, um, I was just reading a book about World War II and Japanese internment camps in the United States. But, of course, those existed in Canada as well. And I, I dealt with that again in my last book to some to some degree. You can read that and, and it becomes immediate because you think this is horrible. This is un, unjust. And, of course, it was. But think about social media and the impact social media has. You can take any issue from last year or 300 years ago or 3,000 years ago. And if described properly, you can feel a sense of injustice right then. And so I think people, though, make the wrong leap where an injustice that happened 150 years ago is still having an effect today. I would say for the most part, that's not true, that actually, um, you know, more recent events will feed into outcomes. So let me give you a clear example. So uh, First Nations poverty, we know that if you look at Canadian income statistics, and one of the authors, Matthew Lau, as he mentioned, does in a chapter in the 1867 project, and he goes after this notion that Canada is institutionally or systemically racist today. And what Matthew does is show that East Asian Canadians have the highest incomes of any any group measured by Statistics Canada. And then, you know, people with your skin color and my skin color, pretty pale faced or in the middle. Uh, if uh, some black Canadians and some indigenous, uh, on average anyway, indigenous Canadians um, make less than say the national average. Now, why is that? Is it, is it due to racism? I would submit no, because if you look at indigenous statistics, for example, you will find if you're a young adult age, 25 to 34, you've got a university degree, you work well, you're full-time. You make the same as everyone else. Why? Probably because you're in a city and you do have a bachelor's degree and you're working full-time. But the averages are deceitful or deceiving because a portion of Indigenous Canadians live rural areas, probably in reserve, not a lot of access to higher education or a great job, less the, you know, the, and work fewer hours. So their incomes are lower. Uh, but look, um, I'll say 1969 appear Trudeau's suggestion that perhaps we do away with reserves. Um, which most First Nations chief opposed then and now, um, the reason for lousy incomes today has a lot to do with geography or the lack of a higher education. So don't blame it on something that happened 100 years ago would be my point or our point in the 1867 project. Um, so it's important to tease out these things. Uh, it was a long way of answering your question, but I think the reason people get, you know, they're canceling so many things today or attack history is because they think John A's, you know, views in 1867 are mistakes on some file yet have resonance today. I mean, only if you want to make the argument, as some do, and it's not, a, it, it's not uh, without merit that the Indian Act is the problem. But again, part of the Indian Act is there because some First Nations leaders wanted it you know, in their day and age for various reasons, which some of the authors go into. But I think people sometimes take a simplistic view of cause and effect. I mean, look, I, I think there are, if I step on your toe, Sean, or you know, the government steals your property last year, 10 years ago, it's going to have an impact on your life for sure. In the 1950s, we should have compensated Japanese Canadians more for the property that was stolen from them. It was an egregious wrong that was done to them. Um, but the further you go back in history, the less you can actually blame things in history on present day circumstances. I'm a product of my choices today, not what happened to my grandparents, say, fleeing Ukraine and 
you know, in, in the late 1920s or fleeing Siberia. I'm really the product mostly of my own choices today. Maybe not entirely. If my, if my last name is Rockefeller, okay, you know, that would be an advantage. But for most people and most of human history, what matters is the last 30 years, the last 60 years, the further you go back, I think the weaker the cause and effect is. And I don't think that's widely understood today. Instead, people draw simplistic cause and effect comparisons. Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Well, as I'm sure you're aware, Canadian news organizations are facing a more uncertain future these days, thanks to federal legislation requiring Google and Meta to pay for news. Big tech's threat to drop all news content in Canada could have a profound effect on many publishers. Some may well see their web traffic halved in the coming months. So what does this all mean for The Hub? Well, thankfully, as a donor-driven charity supported by individuals and foundations, The Hub is thriving. We're rolling out new series, adding new voices, and seeing record engagement across our platforms. The Hub will continue to innovate and thrive, regardless of the new legislation and whatever Google and Meta do. This is true independence. We treasure it, and maintaining it is our promise to you. If you value independent thinking on the big issues of the day, consider becoming a Hub donor. You can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. I would just say it's implicit in the book, and I think the work of the Aristotle Foundation, that that promise of agency is fundamental to the success of our country and the extent to which there are people who don't have agency for whatever reason, then there's an onus on public policy to grant them greater agency. But it's not, in other words, to lament the lack of agency and create new sources of dependency. It's to advance the cause of personal agency and personal responsibility. In that vein, Mark, one example of illiberalism in our society is the growing tendency to challenge the notion of colorblindness, which basically says that we should treat people and people should be treated as if we're blind to race, that one's skin pigmentation shouldn't be relevant to how we're ultimately judged and valued in society. The anti-colorblind crowd strikes me as regressive and frankly, almost anti-enlightenment. What do you make of this trend? Why is it wrong? And how should it be best confronted in your view? Well, I think it comes uh, in large part from the work of Abraham X. Kendi, the United States, um, what he calls anti-racism, but really is kind of, as one of the authors in the book Jamal Giovanni talks about, is really recycled racism. Um, and I think Abraham Kendi's core flaw in his analysis is, again, the simplistic racism explains everything. Um, you're familiar with Thomas Sowell, the American economist. Of course, he spent 50, 60 years on this question in the United States context. And he says, listen, people from the same family have different outcomes. Why would you expect, expect entire groups when they're measured by a statistical agency to have the exact same outcomes? Or the example I think he gives as well of you know, how Italians historically dominated the fishing fleets around the world. Um, that's terribly discriminatory to the Swiss who really are not represented in fishing fleets. But of course, there's a reason for this. And it's, it's the fact that the Italians grew up around shorelines. Uh, the Swiss didn't. Uh, discrimination doesn't enter into it. And so Abraham Kendi's flaw is to see everything as a result of uh, racism. And he redefines racism to be any difference in outcomes. It's a bit circular. You see difference in outcomes between groups and therefore, um, you know, the cause and the, you know, and the reason is uh, is racism. So it's very convenient. It's it's not terribly um, uh, bulletproof, though, I'd say, uh, in in contrast to, say, Thomas Sowell. So I think that's, uh, it is, and it's a regression, actually, because, again, the in human history, 
The core mistake has always been to look at people not as individuals, but as members of their tribe or their collective. And so the 19th century, long before the Nazis come along, the Germans are looking at anyone who's not born in Germany, blood and soil, as you can't possibly be German. And even if you're Jewish, who's born in Germany, you try, you know, you convert to Protestantism, you're never seen as fully German um, because you're part of them somehow. Um, and this is the perennial problem in human history is to not treat people as individuals. And the beauty of the Anglosphere and what developed over the last 800 years in various fits and start, and John Stuart Mill is probably the best enunciation of this in the 19th century, is that uh, individuals should have the right to liberty. And uh, but that's that's not an easy thing to do. You have to consciously think about this. So I think people today are, again, they're, they're making a couple of mistakes. They're looking at outcomes between groups and saying the reason must be discrimination. Therefore, we're going to reverse discriminate. But look, as I said to one guy who defended a, a particular uh, color hiring at a university here in Calgary in one particular department, I won't name them. Um, it was a private conversation. But basically what I said to the guy, I said, really, you've got a color, you know, a position that is available to one color only. So you're telling me that the granddaughter of a Holocaust survivor can't apply for this position because she's what, privileged? Um, it, it's absurd, this anti-individual notion. It's very anti-Martin Luther King. Um, you know, and we took, what, I don't know, a couple of millennia to get to the point we started to treat people as individuals post-World War II. You know, we had a couple of decades of that, really, where that was the apogee of, of aspiration for politicians and policymakers and others and society. And then we backtrack now. And I got to tell you something. Part of this is a fascination with culture. People say my indigenous culture needs to be restored and it'll save me, in essence, right? Or my black culture will. Um, with respect, this is nonsensical. The Germans actually went down this road in the 19th century. They were victims of the French who had occupied German lands. Once the Germans kicked out the French, they began to recreate their national identity or search for their identity. And they got big into this notion of cultural purity. And it didn't save them. What it did is it simply made them xenophobic uh, because culture is, you know, is always changing and it doesn't save you. What saves you, uh, you know, in the grand sense, I would say, is attention to the individual, giving, you know, the individual rights, giving your opportunity, giving people equal opportunity. If you think pure culture will save you, let me give you the example of Japan, where when the Americans, uh, you know, uh, enter Tokyo Harbor in what was it, 1853 or whatever it was, um, well, this, this nation that walled itself off in the world for two and a half centuries was weak and could no longer push back. And they had to accept kind of American demands um, in the mid 19th century. The notion that cultural purity will save you is, is actually um, exactly opposite of how it happens. Cultures that learn from each other, that profit from each other. Uh, you know, we adopted Arabic, new, uh, you know, numbers in, in the Western world. Um, if we'd kept with Roman numerals, we'd still be a backwater because you can't do algebra and you can't do insurance calculations. So, um, so I think there's a lot of things going on, but I think it's, it's a flawed analysis of what's causing distinction or outcome, different outcomes. I think it's a, a fascination with pure culture, which is not going to save anybody. And it's actually insulting. If I want to take on, I, I love parts of Japan. I love some Japanese things. Um, that's part of my identity because I spent two years there. You can you can culturally appropriate, and it's a good thing most days. So, I, and I think we're we're just on this really sort of narrow-minded ethno-nationalist, um, cult, my culture only. Um, that never ends well in history, and it's not going to end well, well now if it continues. And in the meantime, it discriminates against individuals. Great answer, Mark. As our society becomes more heterogeneous and diverse, it seems to me that liberalism and pluralism will both become more important and yet less capable of holding us together. What do you think? 
are liberalism and pluralism necessary yet insufficient conditions for Canada to flourish? And if so, what can we do? What additional ideas or values can provide that essential scaffolding to the country's understanding of itself? I wonder about this a lot. So, and I should probably mention the beginning of the book, The 1867 Project, we kind of lay out the problems in, in Canadian society right now and take on some myths as well. So we have Bruce Party from Queen's University talking about the problem of critical theory, um, which basically is, again, very utopian or thinks you can start from your zero all the time or should. Uh, you've got other people in the book um, that try and give you uh, give readers some perspective on history. And at the end of the book, uh, Van Vicatchel and I go into immigration statistics. And of course, Canada, diversity is an overused word, but Canada is becoming more identity diverse is the best way to put it. Many more different religions, a greater proportion of non-Christian religions, for example, you know, or atheism, non-practicing people in any sense of the word. Um, you've also got people, of course, from all over the planet in a greater number than ever, greater proportion than ever before. What does that speak to? Well, nation states that survive and thrive have to unite around some idea. In France, it's life, liberty, uh, sorry, you know, liberty, equality, fraternity. In the United States, it's life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Um, Canada's credo, uh, peace, order, and good government is less idea obvious, but it's there. And our tradition really is inherited from British classical liberalism, as you and I have talked about. I think we should unite around these ideas, again, the rights of the individual. In other words, no, you know, no, what some people call affirmative action, what I would call racial and ethnic quotas, no dividing people on that basis. Uh, you know, we obviously should unite around the rights of women when it comes to, say, traditional cultures, which may not like that as much. And, and yet, you know, some immigrants that come here may, may carry that. Um, so I think it's important to unite around, unite around good ideas. Now, um, is that enough? I don't know. Historically, um, cultures in any civilization develop probably from, at least in my view or my understanding, from certain religious beliefs or, or philosophical beliefs. Maybe Buddhism in one case, maybe Christianity in another, Islam if you're you know in the Levant or you know that area in the Middle East. Um, Judaism, of course, the idea of monotheism. Traditionally, religion has informed our culture. Now, when you've got all sorts of cultures, can you simply willingly unite around these ideas I've just mentioned, the rights of the individual, right? Maybe, maybe not. If you actually believe that, you know, there's a God that you must bow down to that um, doesn't tolerate certain things, you may have a problem with, you know, and I don't mean 20th, 20th century liberalism or 21st century liberalism, but just even the idea of 19th century liberalism, the rights of the individual, the rights of the woman in that context, you might not agree with that. So can we simply say to people, you should adopt these ideas? Is that is is the wish or the choice enough? I don't know. I mean, Alan Bloom talked about this in, in the closing of the American mind in, in 1987, you know, that as the old kind of regime dies or faith, you know, and he was talking about Christianity, um, you know, uh, you know, it has less influence. What are we replacing it with? And he didn't have an answer. Um, these days, apparently, it's wokeness. But that's maybe another conversation, you know, but but in terms of those of us who think that, again, these these classic ideas um, developed over centuries that protected a lot of people under this oak tree of Canada, under the canopy of Canada. Can you simply accede to these and say we want these? I don't know, especially when you have a ton of people attacking them, including the prime minister, who doesn't seem to grasp that, you know, his own experience being a you know product of French and, and English coupling. Uh, it's the same with Canada. Can we simply preserve these ideas because we wish to? I, I honestly don't know, Sean. I hope so. And that's part of why the 1867 project was written. I don't know if a wish is powerful enough. Listeners will discern throughout this conversation, Mark, your distinction between a project and a utopian destination. How will that 
basic framework influence the ongoing work of the Aristotle Foundation? Sure. I had someone ask me just the other day why we published a column about Ukraine. For the most part, we're going to concentrate on domestic issues at the Aristotle Foundation. But we published a column by Waller Newell, one of our senior fellows, who's written uh, a number of tremendous books on tyrants and tyrannies. And I, I recommend his, all of his books to readers, but those in particular on tyrants and tyrannies, because he's got a deep grasp of why tyrants exist and the different types of tyrants. Um, but somebody asked me why, and he wrote a column on Ukraine saying, you know, democracies, Western democracies, NATO democracies, and the EU and us and the United States should support Ukraine, not necessarily with troops. We hope it doesn't come to that, but certainly we should support them in every possible way we can now in their fight against the Russian invasion. So somebody queried me on why we published that. What I was trying to say to the, the, the person who queried me on this is, listen, they said, well, you know, Ukraine's corrupt. Um, and I said, really? Uh, yeah, so what? Uh, you know, despite maybe the fact the president there is trying to stamp it out in the middle of a war, um, maybe Czechoslovakia was corrupt in 1938. Maybe Poland was corrupt in 1939. Chile wasn't perfect under Pinochet, but I preferred him to the Marxists. Um, you know, and, and in the 1970s, um, liberal Democrats in the United States under Jimmy Carter abandoned countries that weren't perfect. And if we have people on the right now that are abandoning countries because they're not perfect and we won't support them because Ukraine's corrupt or not perfect, um, to me, that's, a, that's the new utopianism or one, one example of it. So people on the right make the same mistake historically as people on the left do. So at, at the Aristotle Foundation, it was a long way of answering your question. Um, we're going to not be utopian. We're going to say, listen, what's what's a reasonable approach to this issue? And in fact, I think that's one of the things that will make us distinct as a think tank. The other think tanks in Canada do great work in the economy and the environment and energy issues we're not going to get into. But we will get into some of these issues of how shall we, uh, what's the good life look like as an individual, but for us as a country, what kind of decisions do we make about other nations to support when that enters in? And we can't take a utopian perfectionist approach. And look, I'm I'm a perfectionist in my own in my own life. I mean, I, I know the I, I know the signs, I know the dangers. <laughs> so, but if if you take that approach, which people do, then I think it leads to you get nothing done, um, or you, you or you're not allowed to ask again. You know what's you know, uh, I mean, Health Canada came out with basically regulations or advice against drinking any alcohol. Um, you know, one should be careful not to imbibe too much, but. The good life is also about, okay, what's the, what's the cost-benefit ratio here? Do I want to live till 96 and never have a drip of wine or, you know, maybe 93? So asking, you know, what does the good life look like, again, is at the heart of the Aristotle Foundation. And it's more of an art than a perfect science some days. So that's going to inform how we approach things using data, statistics, but also history. And hopefully in all of that, it's seasoned with reason. Yeah, let me follow up on that question, Mark, because as I mentioned earlier, the book resists the tendency of think tanks to merely revert to well-trodden territory like tax and fiscal policy, healthcare, or education. It, it signals a willingness to weigh into issues like culture and identity. What should listeners expect from the Aristotle Foundation? How do you think about its place in the think tank landscape? What will be its key differentiators? Well, I think we'll use history as part of the analytical framework, as I've mentioned, right? I think it's also the issues we go after. The issues just mentioned are all important, but they're well covered by other think tanks. And I also think sort of, again, how we approach some of these issues. If we were going to analyze the environment, and I'm not, uh, we're not, I would say you can't just analyze it in a dollars and cents perspective. And what I mean by that, again, using the utopian analysis here, is to understand the modern environmental movement, or at least the most radical wing of it. It's not about a dollars and cents equation. 
if I have an economist say to me, well, if we do environmental policy, why we'll have bad outcomes, economic outcomes, my response is yes, but that's what they want. You have to understand the modern environmental movement as a utopian movement, uh, much like, you know, some religious movements that are utopian. Uh, they want to reconstruct your identity in the entire planet uh, to fit what they think needs to happen. So I think the analysis is going to be, again, somewhat historical and philosophical. I'd also say it's this. I mean, to cut to the chase, um, we want to make people think. And um, so when people say we're a, ra a racist society, really? Um, you might want to rethink that. We're going we're gonna to ask people to rethink that. Uh, you know, our logo is champion reason, democracy, and civilization. Let's think about democracy. Why do the Swiss get to vote against a carbon tax or for or against it? You know, why do Americans get to vote for or against marijuana legalization? Or why do liberal San Franciscans get to throw out school, three school board trustees who um, kept their kids out of school during COVID, but then also wanted to rename schools named after Abraham Lincoln and Dianne Feinstein? So we're also going to look at democratic reform. And lastly, we're going to look at civilization, which is an old-fashioned word, but it simply means we're going to look at how we live together and how we should live together. So crime issues, urban issues, for example. Are we really sure it's a good idea not to institutionalize people who have severe mental problems and instead that it's better to let, let them waste away on the street? How is that compassionate? So civilizational issues, right? But, but with an attention on cities, for example. So reason, democracy, civilization wrapped in, you know, uh, statistical analysis but, analysis, but also historical analysis. But our goal is to make people think. And final question, what does success look like for you at the Aristotle Foundation? Well, uh, a Canada where people treat each other based on their individual merits and not based on some collective identity, where we build on the successes and sacrifices of the past rather than tearing it down. Again, we preserve the oak tree and expand the oak tree and prune the oak tree. And uh, a future for Canada where everyone has the potential, is given the opportunity to be free and to flourish. So that's really our vision for the country, a free, flourishing Canada for all. Well, if one wants to understand those ideas in more detail, they ought to read The 1867 Project, Why Canada Should Be Cherished, Not Challenged. Mark Milkey from the Aristotle Foundation for Public Policy, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Clutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.